Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Colin McFarlane, Professor of Urban and Urban Geography at Durham University, UK. We will be talking about his book, Fragments of the City, Making and Remaking Urban Worlds, published by the University of California Press in 2021. Thank you very much, Colin, for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Of course. Um, so at the New Books Network, we usually start our episodes by getting to know our authors a little bit better. So can you tell us about your background as a geographer and how you came to urban geography? Sure. Well, firstly, thanks for the invitation for doing this. I'm looking forward to the, the conversation. Um, so my own, yeah, my own background. It's always really fascinating to hear how people get into this 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 business and how people became geographers. Uh, it's a fascinating question. I like to ask people myself. I guess for me personally, um, I always cared about cities um, and particularly. Sort of urban inequalities. You know, we grew up in a fairly um, kind of low-income neighbourhood in South Glasgow, and I was sort of acutely aware, really, from a child, uh, age of a child onwards, to to the kind of uh, um, questions of poverty and inequality that were structuring the city, right? And to how cities were lived, um, what they offer, what they don't offer, how they're differently experienced. Uh, I was sort of fascinated and drawn to that stuff really early on. Um, so that's partly where it came from. And then I did at university, Glasgow University, um, I did urban geography in my second year. It's a module that you could choose um, led by, uh, at the time led by Ronan Patterson and uh, in, the, in that wonderful geography department at Glasgow University. Um, and 
um, I got very interested and you know drawn to some of the questions that urban geography was asking of the city around me, the city I grew up in and I was still living in as a student. Um, I found it very kind of practical and political and energizing um, uh, to think through the city uh, from a geographical perspective. And then my PhD, I sort of went on to to focus on cities actually not in in the UK but in India. So uh, um, I I kind of started to look at Indian cities, and in particular, I became very interested in Mumbai, um, and that was the focus of my PhD was was uh, Mumbai and also my postdoc. Um, and again, a lot of the same questions: urban inequalities, urban experience, how urban life was differently lived. A lot of those issues and questions that were really with me from, from as, as I say, from a young age, I'm still there in the PhD. Um, but what was interesting was that geography, Glasgow, you could, you know, I learned about urban geography, but I also learned about India. Uh, from, from So I was able to kind of think, well, you know, I've got these questions about cities that I'm interested in, but I could do it anywhere if I'm lucky enough to get the PhD funding. And I was fortunate to get PhD funding actually at Durham University, where I'm, I, I am at the moment. Um, and that was a, that was a real kind of um, eye opener and a fantastic experience. So that's how it started for me. That's very fortunate for us, your readers as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I love how you took us through this long term thinking about cities, and your book really reads as this long term um, thinking, moving, and writing. So. I was wondering if you could also tell us how you came to the book and how did you arrive at Fragments? Um, well, you're right that the book brings together thinking and research that I've done across quite a long period of time. Um, so I was just saying earlier that my, my work was focused on Mumbai um, as, a, as a PhD student, but I guess over the you know, what's now been 15 years or so since I finished my PhD, um, I've become involved in research projects in other cities in different parts, different parts of the world, many of which feature in the book. So, for example, in the book, I talk about Mumbai, but I also talk about Berlin, uh, Hong Kong, Kampala, Cape Town, uh, a few other cities uh, in different parts of the book. So in, in the process of writing, I became, I guess, over the years, looking at these different cities, I became increasingly interested in, you know, I guess like a lot of urbanists actually recently over the past couple of decades, really interested in the question of global urbanism, right? So it was, it was partly, so my kind of, my sort of arrival at the question of fragments really began with the question of global urbanism. And my initial question, which when I think about it, I was thinking about this this morning in preparation for, for, for this conversation, my initial question was back, it was really around trying to conceptualise and think about researching global urbanism. Right, and that was—I think—that really started in earnest back in 2014. So that's about eight years ago, um, and I was starting to see the work that I was doing in different cities as very often um, both about fragments, right? So about fragments of infrastructure, fragments of housing, or even fragments of knowledge, um, but also as taking the form of fragments, uh, uh, by which I mean, you know. The work I was doing were sort of very particular encounters and stories of urban conditions in different times and different places. Um, so I started to see both the content and the style of the work I was doing as, as kind of as kind of captured by this notion of fragments. So rather than trying to distill all those stories 
that I was picking up from different research projects into one kind of meta-narrative that sought to kind of explain or describe global urbanism, um, I began to wonder, I suppose, whether it might be more valuable for me at least to kind of stick with the fragments, right? To kind of keep a hold of that kind of more, I guess, more messy picture of so many different fragments. Um, uh, 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 and so that's that's really where I started to think about the book, and that so that was probably two thousand fourteen fifteen. Mm, yeah, that's fascinating. And like throughout the book, as you think about fragment urbanism, you emphasize that fragments are relational, right? Um, and I found that so compelling. So I was wondering if you could tell us about what relationality does for you in this work and what is at stake in thinking about urban fragments relationally? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question because relationality is central to the story I tell about fragments in the book. Um, and I suppose in particular the relationship between relationality and practice of different kinds, yeah. So I'll maybe say a few things about that. Um, uh, sort of mind, mindful too of the fact that relationality of different kinds has become sort of fundamental to how we think about cities in urban studies and geography. It's, it's a much more general debate to be had around the presence of relational thinking in different parts of urban urban work. Um, so for me, fragments are both the products of all kinds of processes and, hi- and histories, right, um, and entities in and of themselves. So both products. Both, both products and entities. And these entities may be material bits and pieces, you know, broken toilets or discarded bits of junk in the city, for instance, or forms of knowledge and ways of knowing the city that are often sort of marginalised or unseen by the more powerful actors in the city. Um, but these entities are made and remade in all kinds of ways and for all sorts of reasons. So they're pulled into different kinds of relations all the time, uh, you know, they might become used in a protest, for example, or in the campaign of a social movement, or, or they may become pieces of art, um, or they may become vital to sort of everyday survival, right? So they're used in all these different ways all the time, and they might take on different meanings to different groups, right? Interpreted differently, seen from different angles of vision, and so on. So, so fragments of both historical products and these entities that feature as sites of potential. Right, sites of potential that are made through different relations and practices uh, in the city. So that's why in the book I talk about them as both nouns and verbs, fragments as both nouns and verbs. Um, so, but this isn't, I think, just, this isn't to say that you know there aren't sort of real limits on the possibilities of making fragments anew. You know, the, so the book deals. You know, I think it's important to say that the. The book deals with people in places that are sort of heavily marginalised and excluded, living on the margins of, you know, sometimes really sort of challenging, extremely challenging circumstances. And so, and sometimes it's precisely because of those circumstances uh, um, that fragments are reinvented for different purposes, right? For example, in a protest, a political protest. But, but you know, it's important to say that these are nonetheless very prescribed circumstances for most of the places and people that I'm sort of talking about in the book, right? These are residents, really poor living conditions quite often. And it's not like they're simply free to creatively reinvent fragments not all the time in these kind of in these kind of innovative ways. I must, so I don't want to suggest that in a way that sort of undermines the hardship they're living in. Uh, in fact, in some places in the book, I try to stress the opposite, which is that, you know, that I try to ask, 
how do people manage to cope, get by, to get on in the city, um, even amidst the destruction and debris of all these these kind of fragmented urban worlds that that, that I describe. So, so, so I guess yes, relational practices are central to understanding fragments in the book. Um, partly because it gets that sense of fragments being remade as verbs, but under often very prescribed, limited, challenging circumstances. And it's important to keep a hold of of that last part when writing about this, I think. Mm, Yeah, and I think that's a very important tension to keep in mind. Um, So thanks so much for drawing our attention to that. Um, And I love how in the book, like, fragments act sort of as an anchor, that pushes us to think about other concepts that are closely related, like care and consolidation. Um, and, you know, that part is also one that I found very interesting. So how does fragmented urbanism open up our understandings of care and consolidation? Hmm. Uh, right, I'll say something, I suppose, about, how, about care and consolidation and how I talk about them in the book. Um, but maybe I'll just start by saying that um, when people are living in conditions where, you know, the home or the neighbourhood is highly fragmented, right? So where, for example, infrastructures might be breaking down kind of frequently or housing is constantly demanding this ongoing process of, of repair, Right? In these kinds of conditions, care and consolidation amongst residents can become very important, um, amongst all kinds of other processes. Right, But the argument I make in the book is that care uh, becomes especially important. So I, I think about care in, in two sort of broad ways in the book. One is that there is, there is care for fragments. Right, So there's, there, there is a kind of social work of care um, to, for example, maintain and repair broken or inadequate pieces of infrastructure or living spaces or public spaces. Uh, and as I talk about different examples of that, so this may include sort of the routine work of maintaining um, mundane infrastructures such as public toilets or community toilets. Uh, I talk about how NGOs or community groups are involved in that work, you know, working with local actors to ensure that maintenance takes place. So there's a kind of, there's a kind of, care for fragments is the first sort of um, uh, form of care that I talk about. And then there's there's care that emerges, secondly, partly because of fragments and, you know, partly because of living amongst fragmented urbanisms where, you know, residents form social infrastructures. And I talk about social infrastructures quite a lot in the book to sort of support one another in different ways, right? So this might include... Residents, for example, training each other to set up small businesses or to find job opportunities or, you know, to access childcare or, or just, just looking out for each other, right? You know, watching the kids while people are at work or helping out in terms of a personal crisis, you know, when, when, when something goes wrong and so on and so forth, right? So, so in the book, there's lots of discussions around that based on work that I've done with colleagues um, in Kampala, for example. Um, and in these cases, the way I describe this is that care operates partly to cope with fragmented urbanisms and partly to help find a way of getting beyond f- 
fragmented urbanism, right? So, so it has that dual kind of function. Um, with consolidation, just quickly, I'll just say consolidation is a slightly, slightly different thing. It's, consolidation is when residents have reached a point in a particular aspect of their lives where, you know, conditions are maybe more stable and predictable. So, you know, that's not the case for most of the residents and most of the places uh, in the, that I'm talking about in the book, you know, whose lives are often very volatile and things are often breaking down and falling apart around them. And it's, a, it's a struggle to kind of make things work and predict, make things predictable. But for some of the residents that I describe, um, some of the aspects of their life, their lives, maybe housing, maybe infrastructure, maybe income, has become more reliable, stable and predictable. And in those circumstances, the, those residents are able to sort of almost insulate themselves um, from some of the fragments that I discuss, discuss in the book. And so that's the sense of, of consolidation that I'm trying to get at there. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And I love how you bring up no, not just presence of you know, things and relations, but also their absences. And I'm curious about how you think about this um, tension between presence and absence when you think about fragmented urbanisms. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that because I think that I think it's one of the things I was sort of really most fascinated by in writing the book is this relationship between presence and absence, which I think is quite a important, sort of powerful, compelling one when it comes to the fragment, the idea of the fragment. So, there's, I think there's a really fascinating historical story to be told here, which I only sort of, um, you know, briefly describe in the book, around, around not just cities, but right across history, right? So, you know, we can think about the, the significance of fragments, you know, in the ancient world um, or in religion, um, you know, so, you know, fragments in archaeology, museums, myth, storytelling, and so on, you know, there's, there's a whole body of work, some of which I describe in the book, but it's kind of on the edges of the book, you know, in in sort of material culture, art history, the classics, archaeology, and so on. You know, where, where, where basically what struck me across a lot of those literatures was that discussions of the fragment are typically as much about what is not there as they are about, you know, as they are about what is there, right? It's, it's as much about what is not there as what is there. And so there's work, for example, in archaeology that, as I briefly talk about, which examines what's called deliberate fragmentation. Um, so there's cases in like prehistoric Europe, for instance, where you know archaeologists have shown how frag- the fragments of an object get distributed across different people in different places, and those fragments come to stand for a kind of social bond or for a connection to a larger whole. Uh, and there's like a really deep history of this around sort of religious re- relics. Um, uh, and and kind of like it's partly what makes fragments so interesting historically because their absences, right? You know, become this kind of mysterious, symbolic, important uh, kind of almost like a detective story, right? So where did the you know from which holes did these fragments come from, and what did the holes or the fragments come to mean for different people at different times, and so on? So in cities, we can think of this in all kinds of ways. Like there is, for example the way in which fragments might provoke memories or dreams of distant pasts. Uh, um, so we see this in someone like Orhan Pamuk's writing on Istanbul, where he talks about, you know, the cultural melancholy attached to 
to ruins in Istanbul, uh, and I talk about that briefly in the book, or we see it in the sort of deeply political meanings attached to ruins or ruined buildings in places like Israel or Palestine, which um, here in Durham, uh, Noam Leisham, he's, he's written really fascinatingly about about that. And and of course, like there's like in a more mundane way, there's like a really large tourist industry around sort of visiting urban ruins or relics or remnants of different kinds, you know, religious sites, uh, sort of war-damaged buildings um, or like kind of abandoned spaces, you know, like underground tunnels or unfinished walkways or, you know, people going to sort of the ruined industrial spaces of Detroit, for example, and taking photographs, you know, all that stuff. There's a whole industry around sort of fragments of different kinds in the urban landscape, which is, again, about this relationship between absence and presence. So in the book, I try to deal with it in all kinds of ways. Um, so, for example, you can think about how a broken toilet block acts as a kind of reminder of what is not there as much as what is there, so the pipes and facilities that are missing, um, which may even have never been there, right? So there's this kind of sense of a shadow of a whole, an absence that's always kind of like in the present uh, and can have quite an important impact on people's lives and politics. So, um, so yeah, I, I do think you're right. It's, it is a really interesting tension between sort of presence and absence in relation to fragments and how fragments get made and remade over time and over space. Um, and I think that, you know, that's something that would be really productive to think about more in relation to cities more generally. Um, the, for example, just as a last comment on this, I think Abdul Malik Simone's work is really interesting in, in relation to this very question. Where he talked, for example, about how the city is always slipping away. You know, it's always, always more than it seems always forcing new and surprising stories and encounters. And, so, and that relationship, presence and absence is quite important there. Yeah, that is really fascinating. And speaking of presence and absences, I also love how you show that fragments don't operate in a vacuum. And you show us that they often work in tandem with what you call surveying holes. So can you elaborate on what surveying holes means and what kinds of political possibilities do these kinds of co-workings open up? Um, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. I think the, there's a lot that I would want to say there. I said I, I won't because I'll go on and on. But <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I want to subject you to that, uh, that answer. Yeah, there's... Um, there's, well, in a sense, the whole book is about the politics of fragments in cities. Um, I mean, I suppose as a general point, my argument in the book is is sort of not to advocate for one or another form of politics. Um, so across the, the different cases and cities that I discussed, there are, there are like very different ways of pursuing the politics of fragments. You know, whether it's by residents or artists or activists or social movements or NGOs or, or whatever, right? And so, you know, I won't sort of list them all, but just a few examples. There's, there's, there's a politics of attending to fragments, which I was kind of just talking about, all that stuff around care and maintenance and so on. Um, and then there's a politics around what I call generative translation, where fragments are sort of translated. They're put into different work to generate new kinds of politics. So, you know, I talk, for instance, about how social movements around sanitation in Cape Town and Mumbai take fragments and make them into political 
statements by by shifting their context and um, uh, organizing protests around them, for, for instance, right? Or I talk about art and the way in which art sometimes uses, you know, the rubble or the discarded ruins of fragmented buildings or homes in order to stage a political conversation. And, um, and I talk about occupation as a way of assembling fragments and resisting fragmentation. So the different cases in the book where I talk about, you know, um, the politics of fragments, so just there... It was you know, atten- attending to, generating translation, occupation. I also talk about value and so on. And, and you know, you you mentioned surveying surveying holes um, in your question, and that's that's a, a form of the politics of fragments, which is when activists in, in the book seek to produce data about particular kinds of holes, right? W-H-O-L-E-S, holes. So I talk, for instance, about how activists in Mumbai produce data sets about the sort of number and the condition of public toilets in the city. Um, you know, so toilets in public spaces, transport stations, neighbourhoods, all kinds of spaces, right? And then they, they produce that data to try to hold the state accountable and to lobby for resource. So in other words... Their, their politics of fragment urbanism at that point in time is about not so much working with the fragments, but by working with particular kinds of holes, right? W-H-O-L-E-S, that partly produce fragmentation in the first place. Um, and sometimes that's a very effective strategy. But the, the larger point I try to make in the book, though, about the politics of fragments is that different kinds of politics work in different ways with different people at different times. So... That's a politics of fragments, which I think is contingent um, and contextual. So we can, I think we can learn something from activists who move between different kinds of politics, depending on what the moment calls for, right? So I think in academia, we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that particular political models or approaches are more important or more useful or more successful than others. Uh, um, um, Or that we can't, sort of simultaneously use different political approaches. But I think, you know, and I can understand why that why, why we think that, because it's often because we want to avoid holding on to seemingly contradictory approaches at the same time, or we you know, we you know we want to we want to promote a particular political story and that's all fine and good. But this is the thing is this is exactly what activists I think often have to do, right? Is 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 use multiple political strategies at different times and different situations. And probably, if we're honest, that's actually what academics often have to do as well. But um, And I think it's necessary and productive for activists to do that, even though it brings all kinds of risks and, and challenges and so on. So that's the kind of general pitch I make about the politics of fragments. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off absolutely and i love how you emphasize that because you know the urban worlds we're working with are messy <laughs> so yeah you know our our ways of dealing with them should also be messy <laughs> um <laughs> i agree um, not everyone not everyone, would, not everyone would agree with that you know some people would say well you know the urban world is messy therefore we as academics have a job of um, you know, telling stories which are much tidier and clearer and simplified. And I totally understand that. But I suppose, like I said right at the start, for me, it was kind of what happens when you try to stay with the mess, you know, we try and stick with the fragments a little bit and see what kinds of stories about politics or urban life emerge from that context. Uh, but that I totally appreciate and respect that many of my colleagues in different places, you know, we wouldn't want to wouldn't want to do that, and that's partly what makes urban studies a fun place to work. Is that there is a lot of yeah, a fun, a fun and often argumentative place to work um, in urban studies. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Indeed, um, yeah, and I love yeah i I love how we spoke about staying with the mess. Now I want to ask you a little bit more on how you stayed with the mess or endeavored to. Um, so, you know, what really stood out to me was how you described the book as an archive of fragments. And even in our conversation, you mentioned that you stitched together art, literature, fieldwork, even memoir and visuals to generate this kind of archive. So was generating an archive a methodological tool for you? And how does this book in particular expand our understanding of what an archive is? Yeah, that's such a fascinating question. Um, I'll try and answer. I mean, it's it, <laughs> your book generates <laughs> it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I hope I'll. I mean, I, I guess I use the term archive really just to stress that the book is a kind of collection of fragments itself, right? It's it's a kind of shorthand in that sense. So, you know, it's you know the book is written as short fragments of text from different places that hopefully, you know, resonate with one another and provide some insight into um, urban life today. Um, but I like the phrase you just used, you know, stitch together um, uh, when you were talking, because that I suppose that's exactly right. This effort to try to find linkages and resonances across different stories and forms, you know, field work, art, literature, and so on. Um, so as a methodology, right, so I've not thought a huge amount about that. Um, as a methodology, I think this work of stitching together is is sort of inevitably a kind of experimental one where you're sort of feeling your way along. So, um, you know, you're trying to find connections between cases. So some of the discussions in the book are, are based on research projects or, or, or research activities where I was specifically sort of on the lookout for fragments, if you like, you know, of, of 
different kinds. You know, so I went out to find fragments and had particular questions to ask about them. But other discussions in the book were much more sort of happenstance, uh, sort of things that I kind of came across by chance or maybe that someone recommended. Um, or perhaps I was looking back sometimes on, on work that I'd already done and realising, you know, that fragments were actually an important part of the story and maybe, you know, I hadn't really noticed that before. So so it's experimental then in that sense of trying to weave connections between disparate things and context. But it was also experimental because I was trying to write the book in fragments, right, in fragments of text so that I could, in a sense, underscore the content of the book through the form of the book, right? And uh, that was definitely something I, I wanted to try and experiment with and I made my mind up about doing early on in the writing process. Well, I, I say made my mind up. I went back and forth on it quite a lot and then eventually decided, no, I'm going to try and do this. Uh, having tried it, abandoned it, tried it again. Uh, so it, it was not straightforward. It was very easy to look back on things and say, yeah, this is how I did it. And it was all very well thought through and strategic. And actually it was uh, months of agonizing <laughs> pain and going back and forth. On it. But, oh, no. so, but, the, but the question I continually faced was, like, as I, as I was writing, was how should I connect these different fragments of text you know what kinds of relationships do they generate with one another what themes are emerging um how should i organize the contents i had about you know maybe seven hundred thousand content lists uh, <laughs> and if i and if i tidy it up and integrate it too much will i lose some of the energy that comes from juxtaposing all these unlikely stories so all of this was completely new to me, right? It was a new way of writing for me, at least. And it felt much more like I was assembling an archive, which is why I use that term, uh, rather than writing a narrative in chapters in other stuff that I've, I've produced before. So um, just, the, just the last thing I'd say is that what would be great, I suppose, would be if this kind of model of writing, which, as I show in the book, has a very long history in writing on cities, right? You know, this is you know, loads of books that write in fragments. Um, but my hope would be that maybe it would motivate others to do something similar. So, you know, how can I put this? I think, I think we can be fairly conventional in how we write in geography and urban studies. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying that what I've done is radically different on you, right? Um, in many ways, actually, this book sticks to all kinds of conventions. And I'm not saying either that conventional is bad, right? There's a reason why people use those conventions time and time and again, again when they write. It's because they work, right? Those conventions work. But, but I do often think that, I mean, I just think about conversations I've had with friends all over the place who work on cities who've kind of said to me that they would like to try writing differently, Um uh, uh, you know, they like to try writing this paper or this book in a different way, but they don't really know, uh, they just don't get around to doing it, right? For all, for all kinds of reasons, you know. Um, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't think there's any necessary, any one particular reason, right? There's a whole bunch of personal and individual reasons as to why people don't do it. But I, so I hear people talk about writing differently and they're not feeling they can. So I guess, yeah. in answer to what you were saying, I'd hope that the book... I'm not sure it expands our understanding of archival writing, but um, I, I'd hope that it would maybe motivate people if they were thinking of experimenting slightly differently to try to do that, if only because they were like, 
well, now I can see how not to do it. <laughs> well, no. I'll, I'll, I'll do it properly. Uh, I'm pig's ears. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I personally found it motivating <laughs> and I love, yeah, and I love that, you know, fragments isn't just an argument, but it's a genre in the book. I found that so refreshing. Um, right. <laughs> uh, so you, at least it's just, at least it's one person then. <laughs> if, if that helps. Um <laughs> Yeah, so in another part, you focus on walking as a method. And I love this sentence you use, which is one of the most important ways in which we learn about cities is by moving through them. Um, And, you know, I particularly found it interesting that you use movement comparatively uh, across New York, Berlin and Hong Kong, for example. So I was wondering if you could elaborate on walking as a method and possibly a comparative one. Yeah, um, that's really, thanks for uh, raising that because we haven't really discussed walking, but there is a whole section in the book on walking and it it sort of emerged later in the process of writing the book. Uh, Part of it was a realisation that walking is, is just so important to how I think about cities, you know, even before I was an academic or even, you know, wherever I go, um, you know, pre-pandemic times when we could travel a lot more, that, you know, it would be through walking that I came to get a feel for a place. Um, however partial, however situated, however limited that feel for that place might be, uh, it, you know, it was on foot moving through the city that really made sense to me um, as, as something that I really wanted to do and to kind of get at least, yeah, just a feel um, for how things work and and how things are, um, you know, the smells and the sights and the noises and the, you know, the, the kind of rhythms and the ebbs and flows of people and the architectural mismatch that makes up cities and all that kind of stuff is just so viscerally available when you're walking in a way that, you know, okay, a great book might do some of that work, but there's nothing quite like sort of being immersed sensorially in the rhythm of a city. Um, so partly it was a realisation, you know, why do I not write more about that if it's so fundamental, right? If, I, if it's so fundamental to how I make sense of cities, why, why don't I sort of fess up and say that a bit more often in, in my work? Um, and also, like, talking to colleagues, it's pretty clear that it's true for many urbanists. Um, so I got interested in thinking about walking and about, how people move through cities and of course there's all kinds of ways in which people move through cities and you know there's a large really interesting literature for example in disability studies about different forms of mobility in the city there's a large feminist literature on walking in cities um, given that most of the history of the kind of you know the work that's been written about walking is has been largely written by white men and uh, is you know, who have very particular um, encounters and who have certain doors opened and certain opportunities and certain capacities to move and be in the city that might be harder or more difficult or even denied to other subject positions. So I got very interested in thinking a lot about this and asking myself, well, to what extent did the way I walk around these different cities that I've been working in you know, impact how I see fragment urbanism in those different places? So, so that's one of the questions I was asking myself in the writing, and I thought, in the end, I thought this really deserves its own section in the book because I've been thinking about it so much. 
Um, and I think what walking does in brief is that it gives you some insight into the life of fragments in situ, right? You know, in a neighborhood, in different parts of the city, you can see fragments, you know, of stuff of different kinds, whether it's buildings or objects or discarded things or art projects, whatever it might be. You can see it in situ in the rhythms of the city. Um, and you can see people encounter them. You can see people respond and react to them. You can see how they disrupt urban flows or enable them, how they become magnets or how they drive people away, how they become sources of confusion or interest, you know, fragments of, you know, um, bits of infrastructure that maybe no one knows why they were built or what they're there for or what they even are, you know, all kinds of interesting stories that sort of like, you know, might become attached to them. And you can sort of see that. So it gives you a feel for how fragments surface, but... um, it's a very speculative kind of encounter with fragments because, as I was just intimating, it promotes more questions than answers because you're watching these kind of encounters and you're encountering fragments yourself whilst also wondering, well, what's the story here? What's Where did this thing come from? You know, Why are those people using it in these ways? What's the history of this? Um, what's its politics? Um, and also... What are the fragments I'm not seeing, right? I'm I'm on foot walking through streets. I'm not looking into buildings. I'm not looking into houses. I'm not seeing certain neighbourhoods or parts of the city because every route has its limits. So you're wondering what you're not seeing as well as what you are seeing. So it's a very kind of speculative encounter, which means that you're always having to supplement it with something else, right? Whether that's research methods like interviews or ethnography or data that you gather from secondary materials or whatever, um, or by, um, you know, spending the kind of time of living and uh, embedding yourself in a place so that you can gather um, a kind of greater depth um, through everyday life um, around those fragments. So, so in other words, walking is both about the root and about its limits. important but then this just last thing i'd say about comparison so because i was i was kind of i didn't do a comparative research project on walking and fragments but i was moving between different research projects and doing these walks and thinking about fragments and then finding that other cities were pressing in on my imagination quite a lot so so you might be walking down a street in in Berlin or, or New York and think, you know, oh, I wonder if, you know, the, the arts festival I saw in Hong Kong or the food market I saw in Hong Kong would work somewhere like this. You know, that's a very trivial example. But you, you, in a sense, the, the kind of presence of, of other cities provokes questions about the city you're walking through. Um, and you notice that, you know, actually the kind of fragments you might see in one neighbourhood, even within one city like New York, are very different, right, from the fragments you might see in different neighbourhoods and between cities as well. So, um, you know, walking around Berlin, for example, which I discuss in the book, you you can see in some neighbourhoods, you know, infrastructure, housing, buildings, um, discarded materials, fragmented things, basically, that don't exist in the much more tidied up, heavily invested heavily policed neighbourhoods in other parts of Berlin or, 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 you know, and the same for New York, right? You see these, so you can actually start to read 
almost histories of disinvestments in a minor scale, albeit in a limited way, just by moving through and seeing where the fragments sort of appear and don't appear. Um, so there's a comparative element both within the city as you walk different parts of the city and between cities. Uh, that's quite an interesting conversation that goes on. And I think urbanists are doing this all the time, right? There's a conversation that's not gone in our heads all the time. Like, you know, urbanists read cities when they go to them in particular kinds of ways, with particular questions and epistemologies and experiences. And those comparisons are always pressing in on us. So we're always having these juxtapositions between many different places. Um, and the same is true of, of reading fragments in that sense. Indeed. And you mentioned that walking opens up new questions. So lastly, I want to ask, what is next for you? What are some new questions, projects, or even courses that you're working on right now? Um, so, yeah, well, like all of us, a lot of the work that I've been doing is stalled um, or, you know, because we can't go anywhere or it's hard. We're starting to travel. I mean, I've been doing, I've been doing bits of field work online and offline um, in different places, in, you know, in different projects. But I'm looking forward to getting back to actually traveling. So the, a lot of my time at the moment is spent thinking about density and crowds And this is to do with a research project funded by the European Research Council, which looks at um, urban densities. And really the question is, how is density experienced and perceived in different parts of the urban world? And we've been doing this project for a couple of years now and in different cities. And of course, COVID-19 became a huge focus of that project because, you know, what did COVID do? It, it, it you know, basically put a stop to all kinds of densities, all kinds of crowds in the city. You know, it almost was this kind of great anti-densification, you know, uh, um, pandemic where it was all about getting people out of crowded situations. So the question of the crowd, the question of density is at stake in a way that it hasn't been for many decades, at least going back to, you know, um, the Spanish flu and the end of World War One, where there's a real question mark about what, what it means to be in dense urban spaces. So a lot of my thinking is really around that question and that problematic with, with colleagues in different places. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, the fragments work, I guess, I'm, you know, I'm continuing to try to take that work forward in different ways. Um, so thinking about fragments and writing um, uh, and history of, of, of writing in, in fragments as a way of understanding the urban present, um, but also, um, uh, you know, working with colleagues in ways of taking some of the fragments work forward in new directions. So that's pretty much what I'm up to at the moment, uh, alongside all the other stuff that we have to do. That's fascinating. <laughs> we'll be look, looking forward to what comes out of that work. Uh, thank you very much, Colin, for joining us and for your insights. No, thank you. It's been real fun to do this and really interesting and to hear your thoughts and reflections. So, yeah, massive thank you to you for taking the time and asking such thoughtful, interesting questions. <laughs> It was truly my pleasure. I am Aliza Arjan. This discussion of fragments of the city Making and Remaking Urban Worlds, published by the University of California Press in 2021, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab 
at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.